For those of you that don't know me, my name is Bubba, and I am going to be uh, leading this Sunday school this morning. And let us open with a word of Beth, a word of prayer, please. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you that we are able to gather here together, that your spirit is present here amongst us, that we are able to look at the background and the words and the meaning of your Gospels, the Gospels that testify to your Son, Jesus Christ, made flesh here on earth for his sacrifice on our behalf and the eternal life that we have through that. We praise you. We thank you. I ask your blessing upon this time. And we say this in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Okay, so uh, one thing before I get started. I'm happy to take questions. Uh, if, if they're a question that I think is going to be too much of a rabbit trail, I'm just going to say let's talk about it after class. So don't be offended if I say that. If I think it's good that we're gonna, that's going to help clarify something that I'm saying or something like that, then we'll tackle it. But if you do have a question, you got to speak loud so I can hear it. Or somebody else can help you say it loud or something like that. It's got to be, oh, and Brandon has a mic. So, okay. So, again, my name is Bubba. And uh, let's dive into this because we have a lot to cover. I don't think we're going to get all the way through the notes today. Uh, this really could be a six or seven month or year long study if we really wanted to. So we're going to just try to pack it all into 55 minutes. Um, <laughs> so what we're trying to do today, so Brandon is embarking on what I think is a very courageous and commendable journey that we are all going to go through, which is to preach through a harmony of the Gospels. Now, what is a harmony of the Gospels? How many Gospels are there? There are four. Okay, do they all record the same events? No. Yes, sort of. So that's what we're going to sort try to sort out today. And so... To begin with, while I'm speaking, I want to pass this around. Please make sure I get it back. Um, this is an example of a harmony of the Gospels. Thanks, Wade. And so just you can just kind of look through it and pass it on. And so what this particular book has done is broken out the events, the, li the life and works of Jesus Christ. There's my pen. Uh, into a chronological order. So that then you can see how all the Gospels fit together to form the narrative of the life of Christ. And so, why we're, so what, I'm, what the purpose of this is then is to provide some context as to why such a harmony may be needed. And just so you know, as you look at the book, the bookmark that's in there is set to uh, the feeding of the 5,000, which incidentally is the only one of Christ's miracles that are, is mentioned in all four Gospels. So you can see how it's laid out when there's four texts speaking to the same thing. So, what is a Gospel? A Gospel, there is the Gospel, but then there is a Gospel. And a Gospel, the Gospels, there are four of them, as we know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, throughout ancient literature, there is lots of other texts that are called Gospels. Is anyone familiar with the term the Gospel of Thomas? So, these are often called the Gnostic Gospels. 
And these are false gospels that were written at a later time and attributed to somebody who was a founder in the church, such as Thomas. But there are certain earmarks that we can look to and know that these are not false, I mean, that these are false gospels and that they are not true. I just want to get this out of the way quick. This is not where we're going to be dwelling this morning. Uh, some of the examples are the date in which they're written, the manner of the composition, the language. Most of the Gnostic Gospels are written in the language that in, in Coptic, which is an Egyptian language. If anyone's heard of the Copts in Egypt, the Coptic Church, that's the language that the, they spoke early on in their history. So they're very different from the God. Yes. Oh, I didn't even know what was going on. I have no control over that. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't even know that was going on. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I think they're going to try to figure that out, but I'll just continue on. Uh, so, we have the four Gospels, the four canon- what we call the, canon- the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And church history and church tradition, and I... I'm going to mention tradition a few times, and I know for some people that may be a dirty word, but it is an important key to deciphering things, especially as we look at the beginning of the history of the church. So we have the four canonical gospels. They are part of the canon of Scripture. The canon are the accepted and authoritative God-breathed works that we accept as authoritative. So for the 66 books of the Bible are the canon. So the four canonical Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all of those have a stamp of authenticity that is given to them by the apostles. Remember, throughout uh, the New Testament, we talk about what did they devote themselves to? The teaching of the apostles. So to have the stamp of approval from an apostle is an important point of authenticity for the Gospels. So... Matthew and John obviously need no further stamp of approval, for they themselves were apostles. But was Mark, is there an apostle Mark? Was there an apostle Luke? No, there was not. But as Brandon so capably uh, elaborated uh, earlier, and for those of you in second service, you'll hear in a bit, uh, Mark and Luke were both, as documented in Scripture, had apostolic association. So for Mark, he is... uh, he is associated with both Peter and Paul, and Luke is also strongly associated and was a companion of Paul. So the, their writings were known to the church to be approved by the apostles. And so they become scripture, as they says, God breathed. <clears throat> so when we talk about the gospels, we have two groups that we want to address. There is the first group called the synoptic gospels. Is anyone familiar with that term? Has anyone heard that term before? Okay. The synoptic gospels, I just want to make sure because it sounds like Gnostic gospels, this is not that. So synoptic comes from the Greek word synopsis, which means seen together. And that is to say that when we read them, we see that they have events that are all similar. Now, some have uh, events that are unique to them, and we're going to get into this here in just a few minutes. Uh, But many of the events, many of the accounts, many of the words, and even in some cases the parenthetical references are 
the same from one gospel to another in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, the second category is just the gospel of John. And we'll get to why John is different, what he was setting out to do here in a little bit. So, uh, if you have the notes, I've included a few examples of uh, how the texts are related to each other. I mean, how the, a parallel uh, showing of, of the counts. So, the first one is the account of the children being brought to Christ. And you can see how they are very similar. And even the words of Christ are the same from one gospel to another. And you see this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then I just included a few other examples, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for the temptation of Christ and also the cleansing of the leper, excuse me, early on in Jesus' ministry. And as Brandon is then preaching through all of this over the next months, years, as we move through the life of Christ, you're going to see he's going to be preaching out out of three Gospels or two Gospels. Sometimes he's just going to be preaching out of just John. So this, again, what, what I'm hoping to talk, what I'm hoping you all can understand then from today is why that is. So uh, I, I list some of the similarities there uh, in section two towards the bottom of the first page. I'm sorry, I, have, I like to make notes, so I hope it's not too much. Uh, I want you guys to be able to take something home with you and have something that you can refer back to uh, as, a, as just a really quick, easy resource. Um, so you have uh, one thing that I think is really interesting that really is sinew that binds these together are things like parenthetical references. Not just that the words of Christ are the same, but that when it says, let the reader understand. So you have comments like that that are going to be the same in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or sometimes just in like Matthew and Mark. And, and when it says, let the reader understand, that's a really important key for us because does it say let the hearer understand? No, this is not oral tradition. We know as Brandon went through or will go through, depending on what service you're in, uh, that Luke puts together an orderly account. He's writing down an orderly account. This is not an oral tradition that exists within the church. These are documents that have been researched and they have been rendered, and they are being copied and distributed to the churches throughout the Roman Empire at this time. So when it says, let the reader understand, it is interesting that that is present in both Matthew and Mark at the same place, and at the same time, uh, and I give the citations there that you can, you can look at. Um, they are also thematically, the synoptics, are also thematically united. They are all focused on the kingdom of God, and they are also focused on the advance of Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem and to his crucifixion. So there, when you read the synoptics, you, you don't have multiple visits to Jerusalem by Jesus. He starts in Galilee. He performs his miracles. He travels to get to Jerusalem. He enters triumphantly. He is then crucified and he rises again. That is the same outline in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Now, as we're going to see, John is different. John goes to Jerusalem. In John, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus goes to Jerusalem several times, and he has several encounters with the leaders in the temple. He visits the temple several times. 
that kind of detail is, that kind of outline is totally absent in the synoptics. Each one of the Gospels has some imprint from their author in them, too. Uh, Brandon mentioned Luke and how he is concerned with people. Just there are the names of people, there are more names of people in Luke than any of the other Gospels. He's very concerned with individuals. He's also very uh, particular about researching his subject. And he mentioned the, the incident with the, the case of Mary and how we're pretty confident that, that Luke went and spoke to Mary and that he got the, the birth narrative that's present in Luke directly from her. But you see this in the other Gospels too. For example, what was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. The Gospel of Matthew mentions money and gold and silver more than any of the other Gospels combined. He's very concerned with these kinds of things. Mark is a really interesting case. We know that Mark was a long associate of Peter. In fact, Peter, even in the first epistle, in the uh, first Peter, he calls Mark his son. Now, it doesn't mean he's literally, I mean, he is the son of Peter, but he, in the faith, he is a son of Peter, and Peter has influenced him very uh, directly. And when we look back at Acts in, uh, I think it's chapter 10, with when, Cornelius, when Peter baptizes Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his family, Peter then gives a proclamation. And in that proclamation, especially in, in verses uh, in 10, 36 through 41, you basically have a six-point outline that is laying out the gospel of Mark in its points. There is a Baptist, uh, John the Baptist. You can read this in Acts. It says, John the Baptist, then the baptism of Jesus, then the performance of Jesus' miracles, then he goes to Jerusalem, then he's crucified, then he rises again. So in Peter's sermon after the baptism of the first Gentile, he has laid out the outline of the Gospel of Mark. Where did Mark get his information from Peter? So it has Peter, it's almost like it's Peter's Gospel. It has Peter's stamp all over. Which Gospel is the hardest on Peter? It's Mark's Gospel. You know, at the end of Mark, Peter is never reconciled with Jesus. We don't see that until the end, the very end of John, which was the last of the Gospels written. So Peter is really left hanging in the account, and I think that's his own doing. He is so humbled and so ashamed of his denial of Christ and his lack of understanding of Christ at that time and by what his actions were that he is self-effacing. But John, who is long associated with Peter, I mean, we see that in Acts where John and Peter are going about performing miracles together. John, at the end is going to come in with, in chapter 21 in uh, the Gospel of John, he has this really tender account of how Peter and Christ are reconciled at the end, at the very end. You know, Peter is brought back. In, I mean, he was always already reconciled with Christ. I mean, eternally, and, and you know, Christ wasn't bearing a grudge, but Peter just, you know, he had this weight, and, and Christ lifts the weight, not just of Peter's sin, but of his own behavior off of his shoulders. And it's a really beautiful uh, part of the gospel. And we're going to get to why John is including things like that and different. So we see 
the different flavor of each of the Gospels, and yet they have so many things, like the sayings of Jesus, like the parenthetical references, that are the same in each of them. Now, why is this the case? Why do we need a harmony of the Gospels? How are they the same? How are they, I mean, how, are, how is it that they are at once the same and yet different and bear the imprint of their particular offers? So if you turn to page two of the notes, but, uh, you will see a, a chart there at the top of the page. <clears throat> and this shows the literary relationship between the, four, the three synoptic gospels. You again, note, John is totally absent from this. And in this literary relationship, you have, it shows the percentages of not words, but events and material and sayings of Jesus that are shared between the Gospels. So we have, I think pretty obviously there in the middle, you have what's called the triple tradition. And that is the material that is shared by Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And you'll note 76% of Mark, the events in Mark, are present in both Matthew and Luke. And then you have a, you have a significant chunk of Matthew, 10%, that is shared between Mark and Matthew and only those two Gospels. It's a smaller chunk for Luke. Only 3% of, of Luke and Mark are shared between just those two Gospels. But then you look at the bottom of that graph and you have what's called the double tradition, which is roughly a quarter of Matthew and Luke are the same. They share words, like significant chunks of the Sermon on the Mount are present in both Matthew and Luke. So you have some similarity or some shared material in those two Gospels. Now only 20% of Matthew, so is unique to Matthew. So 80% of that gospel is present in either Math, uh, Luke or Mark or both of them. It's a little bigger with Luke. 35% of Luke is unique to Luke. So 65% of that gospel, though, is shared between Mark and Matthew or one or two of the, the others. So either all three of them or one of the other two. So you have this very strong link that is tying them all together. Now, where does that leave John? John is in a totally different place. John was the, the last gospel written. Some people say it was written uh, in the 60s, in the first century. So, you know, 35. Well, we'll get into the dating of everything in a little bit. <coughs> so... I want to read to you, uh, Clement of Alexandria was a leader of the church in Egypt at the end of the second century. So he's writing about the year 80, 180, 175. And he says, last of all, John, seeing the facts were set forth in the Gospels and at the insistence of his disciples and with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit composed a spiritual gospel. So Mark sorry, John, is operating on a totally different wavelength with a totally different purpose than the other Gospels. 92% of the events that are in the Gospel of John 
are only in the Gospel of John. So you have only a few things that are shared between all four Gospels. Now, those are things that you would not be surprised what they were. I mean, there's the baptism of Jesus. There's the feeding of the 5,000. There's the crucifixion, you know, parts of the passion of Christ, and the resurrection. I mean, and other than that, what happens in the Gospel of John is totally unique to the Gospel of John. Well, why is that? Well, that's because John is writing with a different purpose. He is writing what, what Clement says is the spiritual gospel. He is not as concerned with the life of Christ. That's not to say he's not concerned, but that is not what he is writing about. He is not trying to record the facts of, li- of, of Christ's life on earth. What he is concerned with is the divinity of the Son of God. He is concerned with who Jesus is in an eternal sense, that he is the Son of God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, and we're going to get into Trinity next week. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, he is concerned, he, he has what we call the high Christology. He is, he is talking about things in a much more theological matter, and that is why John... You know, the, the other authors of the Gospels are called evangelists, and John is also called an evangelist, but he alone among them is called the theologian. So he is writing with a different purpose. And if you go and you read the letters of John, especially 1 John, which I think is, is, a, is a phenomenal book and one of the most overlooked books in the entire Bible, John is, 1 John is, is just loaded with... a theology of the the divine nature of the Son of God with love, I mean, love in the theological sense, and that's a whole other conversation. Uh, But all those themes that you see in 1 John, it's almost like it's it's a distillation of what you see in his gospel. And he's very concerned with these things. And and, and let me tell you, love, in, in when you get into John's theology, is deeply rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity, which I know is not something we always talk about, but we're going to talk about that next week. So, uh, that fell into the crack here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm going to put it in my pocket so that it won't fall out this time. I think that was just God wanting to punctuate talking about the Trinity. Okay, that was just, uh, I said we're going to talk about the, the Trinity, and that was, I dropped the mic. No pun intended. Okay, can you guys hear me? Okay, sorry about that. Um, that just totally derailed my train of thought. Um, okay, so I mentioned before how uh, the synoptic gospels are, their, their framework is roughly the same in all three of them. 
Jesus is in Galilee. He performs, he performs the miracles. Then he moves, he journeys to Jerusalem. He enters the city. He's crucified and he rises again. And in John, we see again something totally different. We see Jesus going back and forth from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, does that mean that one is right and the other is wrong? No, it means that the authors of the synoptic gospels had a framework and a purpose for what they were trying to teach, and they recorded the events that they felt was necessary to preach the gospel. Now, note that, and we're going to get into this here in just a moment, but my contention is, and, and I am relaying this to you, but I assure you, standing on the shoulders of much larger giants than I, uh, so this is not just coming from me, but Mark, the gospel of Mark was more than likely the gospel that was written first. And that gospel is coming from Peter. And Peter is laying out the framework at the, at the very beginning stages of the church when he, when he uh, baptizes Cornelius, he lays out the framework that Peter feels is necessary for the gospel to be preached and people to be brought to salvation through the knowledge of Christ. And Mark reflects that, gospel, that, that message and then Luke and Matthew are going to take that framework and embellish it and expand it. But the framework is going to remain the same. And John is saying no, you know, not no, but seeing, as it said in, with, with Clement, it says seeing that the facts had been set forth in the other Gospels, he's going to write a spiritual Gospel. So he is going to document the events in the life of Christ that he thinks are necessary to convey the truths that he wants to convey, which are not in opposition to the other Gospels, but building upon them. So the life of Christ has been established. The sacrifice and the atonement of Christ have been established. But who is Jesus Christ? And that's what John is really trying to drill down into the heart of that question. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, and I think that, you know, coming from him, he was a, he he loved the book of romans i mean and you know martin luther came to faith through i mean real you know real saving faith not just cultural christianity you might say but real saving faith through the reading of the book of romans but even to martin luther john he says that if a tyrant were to take the bible and destroy everything that it of it and eradicate all copies of it, but if a copy of the Gospel of John was preserved, then all of Christianity would be preserved. So within that book, you have the seeds of all the other doctrines that you're going to see. And, and we're not going to get into, into this today, but there's also, when, when they say John, there's a strong affinity between John and Paul. The theologies that they teach are very similar. So there's, a, there's some strong connections, even though they personally were not connected. What they taught was very closely united. And I think it's interesting, too, that John, where did John end up at the end of his life? Outside of Ephesus. Where did, where did Paul spend most of his ministry around Ephesus? I mean, around that part of Asia Minor in, in the Roman Empire, what you would call Asia province. And, you know, John, when, when Jerusalem is destroyed in the Roman Wars, uh, then John is going to leave Jerusalem, and he's going to go where Paul had ministered and sort of pick up the reins from what Paul had been doing there. And so 
I think it's natural that you see this strong theological affinity between the two. Um, and John is different in other ways, where, where the synoptic gospels really focus on speeches that Christ makes, like the Sermon on the Mount is the classic example. John uses a totally different approach, and he uses what we would call a discursive format, where he is discoursing with other people. Think about John and Nicodemus. So John's not preaching to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is asking questions, and, John is, and, and, and Jesus is answering them. Or the woman at the well, or the really great one, which I think is the greatest body of sayings by Jesus, I mean personally, is what we would call the farewell discourse, which is in John 14 through 17. During the night before he, uh, he's about to be crucified, he's celebrating the Lord's Supper and he's walking with the disciples and he gives this long discourse on a variety of things. But it's not just Jesus just preaching to them. They're asking him questions. His disciples are, are asking him and then he's answering and then they'll ask again and then he'll answer at length but they'll ask again. And that kind of format is, is unique to John. And it really plays also into the fact that John is a much more reflective gospel. So he has had a lot more time to digest the events that he witnessed himself as we move away from the crucifixion and the ascension of Christ. The gospel of Mark, I would contend, was written within 20 years of Christ's crucifixion. John was written anywhere from 40 to 50 years afterwards. So he's, it's the last book, one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. But he's also in a position now to be looking back. And you see it peppered with statements like, they did not yet understand what he was saying. Or now we, you know, some, to paraphrase, now we understand what he meant by what he said in this passage. So John is, is much more reflective than the other gospel uh, authors are. So, and I give a few examples of that, but you can look up the, uh, the passages yourself. That's on the last line of, <coughs> of uh, the second page. So moving to the third page, then, I give some examples also, if you look at that chart, of the, uh, the thematic differences, an example, and there's a lot of other, I mean, we could break out pages of these kinds of, of accounting in, in the use of the terms in these Gospels and other parts of the Bible. So one example that I, I focused in on was eternal life versus the kingdom of God. And you'll notice Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the term eternal life seven, four, and five times, whereas they use the term kingdom of God 55, 20, and 46 times. Now with John, it's converse. John uses the term eternal life 36 times, and he only uses the term kingdom of God five times. And you see this reflected in Paul's letters, which Paul is, again, very closely united with John theologically. And then you also see this in John's letters and in, the, in Revelation, which John also, also authored, uh, you see eternal life being a dominant theme in the kingdom of God being either a, a minor theme or not even in, in the John's letters, not even used at all. So you have, uh, you have in, in apposition, not opposition, but an apposition of thematic material that John is driving at different points. He has different purposes. 
And, you know, part of why I want to bring this to your attention is I want you guys to be able to have this in the back of your mind when you read the Gospels. Say, Mark's doing something different. What is he doing? John's doing something different. What is he doing? And as Brandon preaches through this, that's gonna, this is some of the stuff that's going to be coming out as we see which, because on any given Sunday, he could be preaching out of one, two, three, or four, all four Gospels. So he's not going to be, it's not just an exegesis of one gospel for the life of Christ. It's going to be all four, but you don't know what you're going to get every given Sunday because they're, they're recording different things at, you know, in different times of his life. And sometimes there may be multiple accounts or sometimes one. So now I'm going to shift gears for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. So bef- and I want to talk about the, what the relationship between the Synoptic Gospels is and the dating of the Gospels and how we have some idea or a lot of idea of what, how they came to be. So before I shift any gears, are there any questions on John or just the basic framework of the, of the Synoptics or anything like that? Am I just shotgunning too fast through this? Yes. I can't, I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Could Matthew, Luke, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all preach the kingdom of God. If you look at the chart at the top of the third page, it's enumerated there. Um, and that's just one example. There are several other examples. Like there are words that are dear to John that you don't see in other gospels, like uh, abide. Love. I mean, other Gospels use the word love, but not like John does. So, I mean, again, and, and we could make charts like this that would document these, these uh, word studies very carefully, but I don't have time for that. That's not what we're trying to accomplish today. So, <clears throat> then that leads us to what is often called the synoptic problem. And that is the question of how is it that so much material that is the same is present in the three synoptic problems? I would contend it's not a problem. So, but that's just, that's, that's the term that has, been, it ha, that has been given to it in common or theological parlance. So we'll just, we'll run with that. And now, so this, this problem really started to come up in the early... Eight, uh, early 19th century, in the early 1800s, when the Germans, those dastardly Germans, of which I am one, so, you know, uh, they really started to examine the scriptures in a different way. And, and they, 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 they put it through a series of critiques that we would, we, and there's a very, there's multiple different kinds of these critiques. There's source criticism, form criticism, and things like that. And that's a whole other conversation, and I would love to talk about that sometime because that really gets down. I mean, a lot of the challenges to the veracity of Scripture today are rooted in those pursuits that the Germans really started in the early 19th century. One of the things, so in, the, in looking at form criticism and source criticism, what they started to do was look at the Gospels and say, how is it that? Literarily, these are similar. 
the words are the same, the events are the same, the, you know, in some cases the order may be different. Why is that? So they start asking these questions and they start to challenge a lot of presuppositions that people have about how the Gospels came to be. Most people then and even to this day would subscribe to a what people would call the independence theory, that the Gospels, each one, just kind of came into being on their own by themselves. And most of that is 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 ascribed to because it's not really thought about or it's not really being addressed. And that's not a tenable solution because the, the what the Germans rightly observed and concluded about wrongly, but rightly observed is that yes, there are indeed connections between these gospels. There are things that unite them. The, the three synoptics, not John. John is, again, off on its own. So they're looking at, they're drawing up things like that chart on the second page that shows the interconnectivity between all, four, all three of the synoptic gospels. And so they're, they're going to, to try to explain why this is. And so th it's going to give rise to a couple of different theories. One is that Matthew was written first, and then Luke uses Matthew as a source, and then Mark is going to what's called redact, or do like a Cliff Notes version of that. And, th and, and there are still today very conservative uh, evangelical Christian scholars that do believe that that's probably what happened. I don't think that that's the case, and I'm not. That's not what I'm going to talk about today. Um, but there's nothing necessarily heretical. There's nothing heretical about that. I mean, when you think of when you uh, what Brandon preached on this morning, and we'll preach again for those of you that weren't here in the first service, uh, is Luke talking about using the accounts that were before him to compile his gospel. We know he didn't just sit down and the Spirit inspired him to write things down out of a vacuum. Luke went out and did what he did because he's a Greek and he's going to take all these sources and he's going to create, as he says, an orderly account. So we know he's using sources to compile his gospel. So what are those sources? So People, what scholars are saying, given the similarities, they're saying Matthew is first, Luke uses Matthew, Mark is a, is a Cliff Notes version. The strongest piece of evidence for that is an early church father who wrote, who said, when I say early, I'm saying he wrote about 160, AD 160, he said he thought Matthew wrote the first gospel. But beyond that, all of the evidence points to Mark being the first gospel. And that's what I want to discuss for the last 15 minutes or so of class. So, are there any questions? No. Okay. <clears throat> um, so what was that? The, the author, his name was Irenaeus. He was the bishop of a city in France, Bishop of Lyon. Uh, in about 165, 170, he said that he believed that Matthew was the first gospel written. So, 
And he is an important account. And, and one of the reasons why is, and I know some of these names may be foreign sounding right now, but Irenaeus was one of the very first Christian writers to really write at length theologically. So he's an important source for us uh, in terms of understanding the development of theology within the church. And he also wrote extensively against the Gnostics, which I wish we could just talk about Irenaeus because he had to deal with these Gnostic people all the time. And you know what? So do we. Because the people that wear purple downtown are modern-day Gnostics in what they believe. What they believe now is the same thing that Irenaeus was contending with in the Roman Empire at the same time. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So there really is nothing new under the sun. Uh, but Irenaeus, he was a student of a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was himself, as a very young man, a student of who? Of John. He sat at the feet of John and learned. So Irenaeus is writing as a man who, st who learned, who was led to the faith by a man who learned from John. So, I mean, there's a very strong ap what we, apostolic connection between them. So we disregard what he says very soberly, but he said he thinks that Matthew was written first. But we can be pretty solidly certain now that Mark was actually the first gospel written. And Mark is then going to be a source for both Luke and Matthew. So that takes us to uh, the last page. <clears throat> Any questions? I'm just trying to kind of blast everything out at you guys. I'm sorry that there's so much. Um, and I'm happy to talk about any of this in greater detail later today or tomorrow or a month from now. But two months from now, forget it. Um, <laughs> that was it. Yeah. I'm happy to whenever. What was that? It's very possible or, or probable. So there are a few reasons. I mean, now I am going to give you the Cliff Notes version of why Mark is not just a Cliff Notes version of the other two synoptic gospels. So one of them is the argument from length. And if you look at that chart there at the, on the last page, it shows the, the number of verses in each of the three synoptic gospels, and it shows the number of words in each of the synoptic gospels. And you'll note that in both reckonings, Mark comes up considerably shorter than the other two. Yes? Either way, I mean, if, it, if you just reckon it as word, the verses are just groupings of words. Either way, the words are not added, unless you're talking about the ending of Mark, which is different. Uh, but, uh, and sorry, I probably shouldn't even bring that up. <laughs> um, but the verses are added later, but they're still, the, the, word, the number of words is still static. So the, the verses are just measurements of the numbers of words, in effect. It's a condensed, it's a different way of measuring the number of words in a, in, in, as a result. Um, but you can disregard the verses if you want. Just look at the number of words. You have, in both Matthew and Luke, almost 20,000 words, and, 
and Mark has just 11,000 words. So it's considerably shorter, yes. Yes, that's what I was talking about as far as the ending of, of Mark. Um, what I think he was saying was that the verse, the, 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 numer the enumeration of the verses is a medieval addition to the pre-existing text. So in talking about the original inspired text, the verse numbers themselves were not present on that. So how could measuring the number of verses, which is a later addition, be an accurate measurement of the differences between the three Gospels. And I'm just saying that uh, the verses are really, even though they have different numbers of words per verse, are still reflecting the ultimately the number of words that are in each of the Gospels, if that makes any sense. So, um, so the point is that Mark is considerably shorter, and the only way to account for that after recognizing that there is a literary connection that there that in some way someone is using some of the gospels as a source for their materials is to say that either mark is a redaction which is to say that he is doing a cliff notes version or he is the first one and the other two are adding and building out the original material that mark is writing so that is my contention and the contention of of most solid evangelical scholars, and even non-Christian scholars, is that what we would call Markan priority, that Mark was the first gospel written. It might even have been, I mean, it's one of the very first New Testament books written, and, uh, and, and probably was long in gestation as Mark uh, traveled with Luke, and I mean, traveled with Paul, and, and, and was present with Peter, and, and he's picking up all of this kind of stuff. Um, so, but there are other pointers within the, uh, the Gospels that give us clues as to why Mark was more than likely written first. Uh, one of them is, is uh, you'll note in section B on the last page, it says Mark uses rough colloquialisms and bad grammar. So Mark's Greek is actually really rough, but he also uses a number of Aramaic words. Now, which language did Jesus speak? Aramaic. Well, he, I, he probably knew Greek and Hebrew too, but the Aramaic was the, the common tongue that people spoke in at that time in, in, his, in that part of the world. And so he, but there are traces of Aramaic in Mark's gospel, like when he talks about Corbin or the words that he, just simple things like the, th the words that he uses uh, for mattress is, uh, is like a slang term, whereas in the exact same verses, and they're, they're the same in almost every respect, Mark or uh, Matthew and Luke are then going to use the more commonly understood non-Aramaic, non-slang terms. So they're going from rough and they're smoothing things out. So when you read passages, uh, like the Corbin one being an example, uh, you see a, a softening of the harshness that is in Mark. Um, and there are places where uh, the grammar is corrected in a lot of, in, in many cases. And another example is right after the, the baptism of Jesus. In, in Matthew and Luke, it says that 
after the baptism that the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. But what does it say in Mark? It says he was driven, that the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. I mean, what does that mean? Well, Matthew and Mark decided we're just not going to make an issue of that, and they just described it a different way. They're, they're kind of smoothing things out. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with it or that they're using their editorial, their spirit-inspired editorial uh, authority to just make things a little clearer. And you see this throughout the Gospels where they connect, where they are the same. You see this, this smoothing process that Luke and, and Matthew are going to put in place. Yes? Yes, there, there is an immediacy in Mark that you don't see in Matthew and Luke. You're absolutely right. I mean, there, Matthew and Mark, uh, man, Matthew and Luke, man, the K is killing me. Uh, Matthew and Luke, uh, they, they definitely take their time and have a, a much longer gestating uh, narrative. And even things like the, you know, Matthew and Luke both have, are the, the Gospels that contain the birth of Christ. Where does Mark begin? Mark begins with, the, with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. But both Matthew and Luke, got it right, um, they, they're, they're, you can see they're adding on to the narrative structure that Mark already had in place. So they're going to say, okay, we know Jesus is going to get baptized. What happened before? How did we get to the point where he is getting baptized and his ministry is being inaugurated. And incidentally, where does John begin? We're going Brandon's going to preach on this next week. John is the book, you know, you I always ask what's the what book in the Bible started the earliest in time? John, not Genesis. Genesis is in the beginning. But John begins even before the beginning. So I mean, in, John, in Genesis, it starts with creation, the beginning of this world. But in John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. It's before creation is where John starts. So if I could reorder the Gospels, I would do it John, Mark, Matthew, Luke. Because Luke, Luke and Acts are considered one book. There, I mean, there's so many connections. I mean, Luke wrote both of them, and, and Luke is con- intended to be read with Acts, it's intended to be one work. I mean, you look where they, you look at right where they, you know, Luke ends and Acts begins. It's a seamless transition, and there's this just this beautiful account of the development of the church. Where you start, where and you start in Bethlehem, and Jerusalem, and where does it end at the end of Acts? But it's the the gospel has gone all the way to Rome, to the capital of the world. And where is it going to go? To all the four corners of the earth from there. So it's a really beautiful narrative account that you see in Luke. So when you read Luke's, make sure you read Acts too. Um, not Luke's, Luke. Um, I can't go through all of these points. I've only got about five minutes left. Uh, so I would encourage you all to, to look at... Uh, at those points, and I would be happy to discuss them further, or I would be happy to suggest some additional reading. Uh, and there's a lot of other reasons as to why Mark 
would be the first gospel written, but it's an important thing to keep in the back of your mind. And I think part of what you were saying about the, 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 the immediacy of, of Mark is, I mean, he's putting it out there to a church in Rome that's under persecution, and, and they need immediate help. And so he is giving them an immediate gospel. And, and, you know, and why, you know, how that, the, the, the occasion and the purpose and the time and location of the writing of the Gospels is, is, is very important to unlocking uh, what the authors, what the evangelists are trying to say in their Gospels. And that's what Brandon is going to be doing for us over the next several uh, years. But in the end, why does this matter? And I would take you then, Brandon mentioned that he's going to mention this again, if you didn't hear it already, but John twenty thirty one. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And while that is being said specifically of John's gospel, and he is saying that about what he has written, the same is true for all four Gospels. They were all written so that you may believe and have life in his name. So I, I really hope that uh, this has given some idea of to why when Brandon is preaching, you're going to see different Gospels being present in, in his sermons and why the harmony of the Gospels has different things at di- different books at different times. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of richness and depth and really, you know, figuring these things out and understanding them as we read them really helps us to drill down into the heart of God and to know him better. And that's, that's really what we want to do. So are there any questions? Can, can you um, just briefly, I know it's a big topic, can you talk about just the, the author of, of each gospel and why they wrote to who they wrote? Oh, yeah. Thank you. I'm, yeah. Um, so John, well, let's get to John last. So let's do, do them in, some, in, in order. Mark is writing, to, he's writing in the church in Rome. And he's writing to a church in persecution. So he is writing not just to Gentiles, but to Roman Gentiles. And we know this from a few different things. Uh, and I won't go into that. But he, that's, I mean, I just don't have time. Um, but he, he is writing to a church in persecution made up of Gentile Christians located in and around Rome. Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians. So Matthew is the Jewish gospel. It is filled with the Old Testament more than any of the others, even though the Old Testament is not absent from the others, but Matthew is steeped in it, and it is, it is the most Jewish of the gospels. Luke is writing to the Gentiles. He is writing to all believers that are, have been outside of this particular community and, and to Jewish Christians, as I mean, it's univer- the truths in it are universal, but that's who his audience was at that time. I mean, you could broadly say, and it is often said, Luke is writing to the Greeks. Um, but it, it doesn't mean you could be Egyptian and still be Greek at that point in time. And then John, John is just, like I've been saying, is just, he is doing his own thing. He is, he, he, he is not necessarily 
writing to a specific audience as he is, I think, the most timeless of the Gospels. He is really trying to emphasize the divinity of Christ regardless of who you were, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of anything. And John Calvin even says that the Gospel of John is the key to unlocking the other Gospels. So it, it really is a critical book in the canon of the Bible. And, and I can't encourage people to read John and First John enough. It's a beautiful book. It's a phenomenal book, and it's so overlooked. So let me close in prayer. And if you have any questions, feel free to accost me um, afterwards. <laughs> so thank you all uh, for this time, too. And thank you to Brandon and the leaders, the, the elders, and uh, for giving me this opportunity. I, I hope it's it's been helpful. So Lord, I thank you for the evangelists. I thank you that you inspired them, that they documented the life of your son on earth, Emmanuel. I thank you that we have read them, that this was written for us, for all believers at all times, and that through that we have known more about you and your son and your spirit. So we thank you for this time, and we praise you, the great shepherd of the sheep, Amen. Thank you, everybody.